0: I had to get into the front rank. I wasn't born there, was I? I use my brains. Uh, you use mine, you mean? Well, if I do, I pay
1: you for it. Well, not enough to justify your interfering with my drinking. But this is a treason case. It's a matter of life and death. Well, so is everything else. What of it? Cardinal, I beg of you, have a look at this brief.
0: Hello, and welcome to The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture in order from the very first award ceremony to eventually the present year. I'm Susan Araslin.
1: I'm David Dahl.
0: And this week we are starting a new year and we are free of 1935.
1: <laughs> Except we're not, because this movie technically came out in 1935. But it is part of the 1936 awards.
0: Right. It was nominated for 1936. I don't know why, but who are we to question the Academy? Actually, that's all we do, really, is question (laughs) the Academy.
1: (laughs) I think, actually, my theory is that they wanted there to just be a clean split between 1935 and any good movie. (laughs) And so this one got pushed to the 1936 awards. Okay
0: fair. I mean, it did come out December 27. Yeah, of 1935. So this week, we watched A Tale of Two Cities with most of the cast of David Copperfield.
1: Which works out surprisingly well.
0: Weirdly, everybody in this is cast much better than they were in David Copperfield, including the people who were in David Copperfield.
1: Yeah, generally, I feel like Everything I didn't enjoy about this is, like, from the book. Like, the last act gets kind of complicated morally, right? But, like, also, so does the actual French Revolution.
0: Yeah. You could say that
1: <laughs> so they c- kind of get a pass on that
0: it's funny the last act does get complicated morally but while i was watching this i couldn't help thinking how much they simplified the french revolution which i'm sure is dickens because from a remove the french revolution seemed to be pretty cut and dry it was like oh they had a good idea and then they immediately went to a bad idea where they just started chopping everybody's heads off. And it was like nowhere near that clear of a trajectory.
1: Yeah. And like it happens so seemingly we go straight from the Bastille into the Reign of Terror in like a week and a half, which that ain't right.
0: <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: Uh, It's also weird, though, because the movie does so much to set up the like, justifications for the French Revolution generally, and the like, plight of the poor people of Paris, and then the poor people of Paris become our villains. Like, it's like, then why did you spend so much time with them in Act One?
0: I mean, in that regard, it is not unlike the actual French Revolution. But of course, like, all of these characters are fictional and not, you know, like, Danton and, um... Oh, what's the most famous one? Why am I blanking on his name right now? I've just read, like, three books about the French Revolution back-to-back.
1: Oh, uh, Robespierre.
0: Yeah, Robespierre. I mean, mostly it, it is Madame Defarge who is our real, like, bloodthirsty French villain. So, uh, to pretty quickly explain this story for those who haven't read A Tale of Two Cities... There is a woman whose name is Lucy, who is played by Elizabeth Allen, who was David Copperfield's mother in David Copperfield, where she seemed to be about 12. And in this movie, she is like a a grown woman. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, (laughs) she even looked different to me. Because she didn't have this, like, blissful sort of lamb face on the whole time. Like, she really looked very sheep-like in David Copperfield.
1: (laughs) Well, it's helpful she takes an active role in the very first scene we see her in.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: (laughs) Unlike David Copperfield, where she is passive up until she dies.
0: Yeah, she finds out from a banker?
1: This scene is the most dick and shit. It's like, hello... I am a banker and I have a character quirk and it's that I feel no emotions. You know how your dad's dead? Well, secretly, he was never dead at all and has been in secret prison for decades, which is like the most Dickensian.
0: <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. You really, you really <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> so she, of course, like gets on a boat to go to Paris to uh, get her dad back, who has been in the Bastille for 20 years or 18, whatever. It's close to decades. And she is accompanied by these, like, wholesome French commoners, I guess. (laughs) Uh, No, not accompanied by them, sorry. She meets these wholesome French commoners, Ernest Defarge and his wife, Madame Defarge. And they are like, here's your dad who is out of prison, but somehow is still, like, in prison rags. Yeah. Like, hasn't shaved, and his pants are, like, torn at the knee and shredded up to, like, his hip.
1: They explain, again, like, I mean, it's Dickens, so it's very Dickens, but, like, the first 20 minutes of this and the last 20 minutes of this are, like, peak Dickens. And one of them is them explaining... That the dad was in prison so long that he just has to pretend like he's in prison forever, or else his mind shatters, which is a thing that's like. Is that a thing? Or did Dickens just go, I'm not going to do research. That sounds cool. I
0: feel like that's a pretty standard trope is when somebody has been in prison so long, they don't know how to function outside of it. But it's so literal in this movie.
1: Exactly. It's like you heard about that at a dinner party and then thought it meant, no, literally, they can't conceive of the idea of not being in prison anymore.
0: Right. Like, you you gave them bread that didn't have bugs in it, and they were like, "This isn't food." Yeah, which in this like is not just that he's in rags and is dirty, but also he like has to have the door locked for the place where he's staying from the outside, so he's being locked in and doesn't have any control over it, which is really sad, but is a thing. Anyway, Lucy rescues her dad, shaves him. <laughs> I mean, they don't show her shave him, but he does get shaved. And then they go back home, and that is where, on the boat, she meets Charles Darnay, who is a French aristocrat, and is the cousin to the Marquis de saint Evremond, played by Basil Rathbone, who is cast so perfectly in this movie.
1: (laughs) Who you meet, by the way, having run down a peasant child in his cart, and then goes, you stupid peasants don't know how to get out of the way of my cart. Which is, again, like, peak Dickens.
0: Yeah, he he is totally Dickensian villain, but then add, like, the wig and the beauty mark.
1: (laughs) He starts at Over the Top and keeps going until he, spoiler alert, dies. And so Basil Rathbone is, like, perfect casting for him. He's pretty great.
0: And then Charles Darnay is like so totally blasé handsome that, of course, the young Lucy falls in love with him. He is accused of treason, which I, I wasn't clear on how that really works out. Because like if you are a Frenchman and a French aristocrat at that, how are you going to be accused of treason by the English?
1: I don't know. The, the whole thing seems like one of those things where it's like, oh, I bet this was actually way clearer in the book. Because this seems like one of those procedural things that you could like milk a couple of weeks out of that they really kind of hand wave a lot of the Act One trial stuff very quickly, except for the stuff with Sydney, except like our lead.
0: Right, which is fine, because honestly, like I do not care about the particulars of 18th century English legal system at all. Anyway, enter our lead.
1: (laughs) Yes, who is a constantly drunk, I don't know if he ever passed the bar, but legal genius who's letting his genius get co-opted by this sort of low-level aristocrat.
0: I don't know that he's ever passed the bar because if he was near one, he went into it. You Played by Ronald Coleman, who was Dr. Aerosmith, by the way, in Aerosmith. Really? Yeah.
1: I was wondering why Wikipedia makes a big deal about him shaving his mustache. It's because apparently he is totally unrecognizable without that mustache.
0: It literally changes the entire structure of his face. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow. But his name is Carton, and he goes drinking with the prosecution's main witness and tricks him into admitting that he's lying about Darnay speaking treason. Except that, like, he kind of wasn't. The guy did talk about how the U.S., or like, the American Revolution was sort of justified on the boat. Yeah. Anyway... <laughs>
1: Apparently, at this time, they at least don't prosecute for trying to intimidate a witness, and they successfully intimidate this witness into leaving, and therefore win the case.
0: (laughs) So Lucy is like, oh, thank you for saving the guy that I'm in love with, which apparently makes Carson fall completely in love with Lucy tragically and then there's a bunch of stuff of them like living their life she gets married to Darnay Carson doesn't go to the wedding which is like kind of a I wouldn't say it's a point of contention but she is disappointed about it
1: yeah there's a thing that's like kind of interesting I think in the second act I should say by the way I've never read a tale of two cities this is like the first time I've like seen the full tale of two cities which is very good (laughs) But, like, there is an interesting thing here in the sort of second act that's about this love triangle question mark where you think it's gonna, or at least I thought it was gonna go this very different way and was like, oh no, because of the way that Dickens stories, I think, in my head, traditionally go, which is you have this act one setup for how the day's eventually gonna get saved and everybody's gonna end up happy. So I kept waiting for, like, Carton's, like, inevitable wife to show up or for, like, the part where, like, all of this pays off with everybody ending up happy.
0: Right, which doesn't happen.
1: Nope. (laughs) The result of that, though, is this weird second act where a lot of stuff that you are supposed to read as Sidney Carton be kind of a dick because he's kind of obsessed with this woman who just isn't into him in that way reads more as like the genius lead pining for the beautiful woman he will inevitably get. And you're like, oh boy, there's not a way they can pull that out where it's going to be a good look. So I'm really afraid of this. And that spoiler alert, that is definitely not how that story ends.
0: No, and I think that the playing of the is not even really a love triangle. You know, Lucy really does respect Carton. She thinks that he's a, a good guy. Over And beyond how he perceives himself, even. She worries about him drinking too much and thinks that he shouldn't and really thinks that he's, like, a lovely and intelligent person. And he pines after her a lot, but doesn't think that he deserves her. And there's no moment of him being like, well, I love you and I'm a nice guy, so meh. Like, he never makes a move on her, which... I appreciate it.
1: Yes, agreed. I kept kind of dreading that is what I'm saying, because it does walk up to it a couple of times with him, like not going to the wedding and him like very clearly looking just devastated when she says she's getting married. But like the movie always intelligently kind of judges him for that, which is good.
0: And I think the movie always makes sure that we are aware that he is suffering But also that part of the suffering is that he is not telling her and putting any of that suffering onto her. And like, yes, missing her wedding was pretty shitty, but it's better than showing up and being like, don't marry him. Marry me. I love you. Yeah. Anyway, she has a baby.
1: (laughs) And then we kind of get really deep into the French Revolution part of the plot, because we have, like I said, gone immediately from the storming of the Bastille, Which is a great sequence with like, when the two people jumped up on the rising bridge of the Bastille, Yes, I literally yelled stunts in the middle of my living room, (laughs) because it's like the first real outside of like City Lights, which was not actually nominated. True. The first like, this is a stunt sequence. I feel like we've seen, we've seen a lot of like fight sequences and a lot of like, I don't know. There was just something about that that struck me as like the first two like paid stunt people that we've seen.
0: Yeah, cuz that looked like it could be super dangerous. Yeah. And would take a certain level of athleticism.
1: And they were like so clearly separated from the rest of the extras all running around, but after that great sequence we go immediately into the Reign of Terror. Madame Defarge has captured the boring husband's tutor from back when he lived in France and manages to use the tutor to trick basically Darnay, the husband into coming back to France on the pretense of saving the tutor, but the tutor is like murdered immediately after writing the letter. This is what I mean about the reversal of the typical Dickens thing because you get this scene that is the like trial for Darnay, where the dad who was in the Bastille and is like a hero of the people, comes out and like begs that like he has forgiven this man and begs the people to also forgive the man, and then the, like, set-up-an-act-one Dickensian, like, last-minute thing actually screws everybody over, because it's that, well, the dad was, like, insane with being in the Bastille. He wrote a note cursing all of the family line of the Evermonds in, like, in perpetuity for all eternity. And that immediately gets taken up by the people as, like, Well, that's legally binding, I guess. Right. And they sentence Darnay to be killed by the guillotine in like 48 hours or like a really short period of time. Right. There's a couple of sort of last minute schemes that you always know aren't going to work. And then the one that you know is going to work because it's Carton's idea. And because they don't immediately say what the idea is.
0: That's true. I mean, one, Carton always seems to have the right idea. And it always seems to be something that's like a little bit sketchy. Yeah. And this one is. But because they don't tell you, you're like, okay, this is the one that's going to
1: work. There's sort of two parts of this plan. One is that everybody except Carton, who has come to France to try and rescue Darnay, is going to get all their stuff together and leave super early in the morning because Madame Defarge, who was the one who revealed the secret Bastille letter, has figured out that Darnay has a daughter and is going to hold them to that in-perpetuity clause and murder the daughter too. And so they're collecting all of them and getting the hell out of Dodge... Meanwhile, Carton is going to go to where Darnay is being held, drug him with smelling salts while making him write a letter for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me.
0: I think it was just mostly to distract him. So it was like, yeah, I'm definitely not going to just, I don't think there were smelling salts. Smelling salts wait, wake you up. Right. I think it was chloroform.
1: Chloroform. That's the one. Really tell it on myself that I've never like drugged anyone before.
0: And apparently I'm really telling on myself <laughs> in the
1: opposite way sure
0: (laughs) yeah so i think it's really just to distract him and make sure that he's looking down so that when he puts the thing in his face like he's got good leverage that makes sense that's what i interpret it
1: as but then he swaps out his clothing for darnay's says something about like oh carton got so overwhelmed in there and that what's the guy's name barsad who's the guy he pressured earlier but is now in the first trial now lives in france and is a Semi respectable member of the police over there? I mean, sure. <laughs> and has Barsad sort of drag Darnay in Carton's clothes out of the prison while Carton takes his place to get killed by the guillotine in the morning, which they then, like, go through with (laughs) and really, like, make you sit with for a while in an extremely good sequence.
0: Yeah, it is a really good sequence, because it's not just like, okay, now they're at the guillotine. Like, there's a seamstress who's in prison with him,
1: who... She, by the way, is great.
0: Oh, man, she's so heartbreaking. Yeah. Isabel Jewell, who apparently was like not even allowed to audition for this part by the director because she was known for like really jokey slapsticky comedies and he was like no you absolutely can't play the tragic seamstress no one is gonna buy it and the producer was like no get her let her audition and and the producer was right so
1: yeah because she's great like Again, this is a movie where I think almost all of the casting is very good. Yeah. Probably the most prominent role where I'm like, this isn't the best acting I've ever seen is Madame Defarge. And she's not terrible. It's really minor people who do not great acting in this film. And like, even though the standard of acting is quite high, when she comes in, you're kind of like, holy shit.
0: Yeah, she really holds her own against ronald coleman who's somebody who has definitely engendered a lot of sympathy at this point but the two of them acting off of each other is just like okay well i my heart just like shattered and then turned into dust when i thought it could not break any further so she's really afraid of dying and he's very comforting to her and there's something about like her family doesn't even know where she is and they're not they're not gonna know
1: her sisters yeah
0: yeah They, like, go and are waiting in line to be killed at the guillotine. And there's, like, hundreds of people there. And Madame Defarge is sort of sitting in this, like, she's supposed to be sitting in this place of honor because she has essentially become the Robespierre of A Tale of Two Cities. Yeah. And she's missing.
1: Right. Because of this other scene that we should probably talk about just so we can talk about Edna Mae Oliver for a second. Which is that Madame Defarge goes to try and capture Lucy and the daughter, just as Carton predicted, because he's a genius, and gets caught by Miss Pross, who is Edna Mae Oliver, who played the stuffy but still essentially right and lovable aunt in David Copperfield, playing essentially exactly the same role in this movie.
0: Right. Right. Except she's a governess instead of being a blood relation, but it's the same. It's the same character.
1: And it is kind of that scene I wanted in David Copperfield, where Edna Mae Oliver physically confronts the villain instead of just emotionally confronting them, though she also does that. Yes. She curses out Madame Defarge really literally in every way imaginable. Then Defarge kind of attacks, the two of them struggle, and Miss Pross, Edna May Oliver's character's name, ends up killing her, and then exits to go leave France with everybody else. Yeah. And it's kind of a thing where after the first couple of scenes, Edna May Oliver isn't given a whole lot to do, and you're like, oh, that's kind of a shame, because she's really d- great in this part, so it's kind of a shame she doesn't have a showcase in this one. And then she- And then she
0: gets to kill someone. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which again- I wanted her to do in David Copperfield... But she she didn't. Also, Basil Rathbone dies in A Tale of Two Cities, and he doesn't in David Copperfield. So yeah. this movie is really so much better, and it is in so many ways like wish fulfillment for everything that was missed in David Copperfield.
1: I would agree with that.
0: Anyway, back to the guillotine.
1: Anyway, back to the emotionally affecting stuff after I celebrated a woman's death for five minutes on the podcast.
0: If it's not a real woman.
1: <laughs> That's fair.
0: Also, how many people has she said to- their death and she's trying to kill like a little baby
1: oh yeah no she's a horrible horrible person yes i'm really not debating that i'm just saying like anyway now back to being somber about how death is always terrible um (laughs) it's interesting because even though i haven't read a tale of two cities i like went to the wikipedia to see how it differed from the novel And I also already know the last line, because everybody knows the first and last lines of The Tale of Two Cities.
0: It's all the stuff in between that I didn't know.
1: Exactly. And like, I think it is very interesting the way they adapt some of the stuff outside of the very last line in that last chapter, where the sort of sense of peace that is in the novel, because you are getting it first person from Carton, like you know what is going on in his head. In this one, they have him just sort of comfort the seamstress about like the afterlife in this really like non-denominational, like basically there is a thing that I've very rarely seen portrayed on film well, which is the comfort of somebody with just the strength of their convictions, that somebody that just genuinely believes something hard enough that you're like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, that I can I can roll with that. Let's go. Where it's not necessarily even what he's saying or what his point of view is that is particularly comforting. It's just that he's like, yeah, I'm going to this thing. I have a really clear picture of why. I have a really clear picture of what's going to happen. And yeah, good. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, then the seamstress gets killed and he goes up and gets put in the guillotine and the camera rises up to the blade and keeps on going (laughs) And you get a fantastic shot of the French Revolution era Paris skyline. And you hear him say, it is a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest I go to than I have ever known. And the movie ends. I think you hear the guillotine snap sound effect and the movie ends.
0: Yeah, it's it's really good.
1: It's really, really good. It is... It is the best last shot of a movie we have seen by a fair margin.
0: It reminded me actually of All Quiet on the Western Front. And it made me realize like how long it has been since we have watched a movie that managed to convey that sense of sadness and loss and just pointless mass murder in a really somber and beautiful and evocative way. And even though the last shot, it's not the same, but it had that feeling for me of like, Wow, it really hit home while the movie itself was not the like absolutely brutal slog that All Quiet on the Western Front was. Yeah,
1: I think like the other thing I was going to say now that we're talking about the film in general is like, I think this film manages tone so well in a way that, like, David Copperfield, like, that was one of my main criticisms, was like, where are we? Why is everyone talking like this? What is happening?
0: It's a movie that is essentially about horrible child abuse. And then eventually, like, the protagonist grows up and, like, overcomes that, but loses their wife. And, like, the, it's, a, it's about, like, the sadness of any sort of general life, I guess. But the movie was so all over the place. I mean, like that that whole scene where he's a kid and he's like, here's all the horrible things that have been done to me. And it sounds like, you know, somebody from Little Rascals recounting some bullshit where their bubblegum got stolen, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
1: And like the opening shot of that David Copperfield is some real like silent movie physical comedy bullshit where like it's so windy outside that Edna Mae Oliver keeps getting blown around in the storm. And it's like, what are you, why is this the energy you're bringing to the start of this story? Whereas this, like, there are funny bits of this movie. Not, like, laugh out loud, knee slapper, fucking stand-up comedy. But, like, there are sequences where, like, Carton's cleverness is the point and you're supposed to sort of, like, chuckle along with the cleverness.
0: Or Miss Pross is, like, Mrs. Pross is funny. Yeah. Because she's the stuffy... Old, annoying, but also right governess.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And like, it manages to hit those tones and not make you go like, whoa, a woman just died. Hold on. Like the way that David Copperfield does that, like it manages both the energy of that and the energy of like the French Revolution and the Reign of Terror and has those in the same movie without you going like that's you can't do that which i know is kind of a low bar to clear but is one of those things that i'm like really happy to see show up because i don't think we've seen it much before that like really having this kind of a tonal range and having a handle on all those tones seems like sort of a new development
0: <laughs> yeah oh definitely and and the director for a tale of two cities jack conway definitely had grown personally in that way because the last movie that we saw that he did was viva via
1: jesus yeah yeah (laughs) which maybe gets the award for worst attempt to shoehorn comedy into something in a movie we've seen
0: (laughs) yeah that's 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 possible
1: what can the guy not draw in viva via again a bull i can't draw a bull what if just the last act of A Tale of Two Cities was him meeting that guy and going, I, I tried to draw a bull. <laughs> Um And that's... Anyway.
0: Yeah. I mean, and the guy who directed David Copperfield, he directed One Hour With You. So like Ernst Lubitsch decided not to direct that one and just produced it.
1: Oh, that's crazy.
0: And it shows. It shows. Like David Copperfield feels like David Copperfield directed by the guy who did fucking One Hour With You. <laughs>
1: God, I had no... I ha- How did we not realize that when we were reviewing One Hour With You? Well,
0: because we didn't get to David Copperfield
1: yet. That's fair.
0: I mean, it's it's still an Ernst Lubitsch movie. Yeah. He apparently was on set the whole time. I think he's credited as, like, the both of them directed it. Like, Ernst Lubitsch and George Cooker because... Uh, because Earth Lubich couldn't stop coming to set. <laughs> I need to focus on producing by being here every day.
1: And making sure all the women's costumes are all right. Right, Bring out the girls!
0: <laughs> but Jack Conway definitely has grown tremendously as, as a director between Viva Via, which... Like, knowing that I can see certain things in it that are stylistically similar. Yeah. There's a lot of text in this movie over action shots. And there was a lot of that in Viva Via, too.
1: I gave this movie a pass on them because they're all so, like, Dickensian. Like, bad exposition dump things. But my favorite one was the one that was like... They ended a scene with some weird construction of like, and then I guess I'll just keep on walking. And then it goes to like, in huge text, and in Paris, the people were walking too, walking for justice. And it's like, <laughs> I, I did not get that exactly right, but the one in the actual movie is not much better.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, that's pretty much what it is. Yeah. I mean, and they're not all terrible. And some of them, I I felt like some of them had this necessity almost because it, in Dickens, there's a lot of stuff, always, and they did cut some stuff, at least as far as the Wikipedia plot summary of A Tale of Two Cities is concerned, um, to really, really focus in on Carton being our lead and not for the movie to be quite as sprawling as the book is.
1: Right, which is, again, another one of those, like, this is David Copperfield's done right things. When there was a subplot that had nothing to do with the main plot, they just cut it. Seemingly, again, I also just read the Wikipedia summary, but there were a couple of things where it's like, oh, we just never met that person. That just never even started to happen. And like, good, (laughs) because this movie's a little over two hours and like, yeah, that's about right. If there was an extra hour in here where it's like, meet Clive Woodbidden's and like, Oh, he's a bumbling old college professor who's gonna. It's like, no, I, I don't need that.
0: Is there? Is there actually a Clive Bumberden in the? No. I mean, I figured it wasn't going to be Bumberden.
1: No, I, I. No, I just made up a fake Dickens subplot. I barely care story on the spot.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a. 45 chapter novel that was published in 31 weekly installments and they cut it down to two hours and change so like good yeah good it's really exactly what it needs to be nothing in particular stands out as extraordinary other than the acting like the costumes are good but they're not like Oh my god, they're so sumptuous and amazing. Like, maybe the most standout aesthetic thing for me was there's a point where they're at the Marquis de Saint-Evremont, Basil Rathbone's house... And it's the only sort of nod to the big white art deco set in the whole movie. Like the rest of it feels very the 18th century, like everything is kind of dark and claustrophobic and like wood.
1: (laughs) I think that the most impressive thing about both the sets and the costumes is how much they don't stand out.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they feel right. They're they're not the focus of the movie. They're not the focus of the scene. Like they really let the story breathe and they really let the acting take precedence here. And that's that's an unusual quality in movies of the thirties we're finding.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the last thing I have to say before we get to rating and saying if you should watch this is like I've been taking notes for a while and I took notes on this one, but like I have a fourth, a fifth the number of notes I usually have, because like, I didn't know the story. And the story kind of requires you to pay attention to know what's going on. And I was engaged by the story and just watched the movie, instead of spending every scene going like, what's my commentary on this scene, as I have done for the past like a month or two. Right,
0: right. Yeah, because it, it was actually a, a good and engaging movie with talented actors. <laughs> yep. What? Who, who weren't horribly miscast in their roles or telling a really like pointless story that was infuriating. As far as scoring this movie, like, it wasn't the greatest thing I've ever seen in my whole life, but it was like a totally solid and tight movie. Is that like
1: an eight? Yeah, I'm I'm thinking in the seven or eight range. Like, honestly, there's a thing where I feel like this movie has gotten, I feel like I'm rating this movie lower because I'm afraid of rating it too high because we watched so many bad movies before this one that I'm afraid to go like, this movie is great. Like <laughs> I I have trouble really coming across what the like problems with this movie are, but I also don't feel comfortable giving it a nine or a ten, because how much is it like, oh thank God it's not lives of a bingo lancer? <laughs> like nobody really like just racist fugue states out for twenty minutes in this film. It's fantastic. But like I I I mean I think an eight a- is definitely fair for this.
0: I yeah, I I think an eight because it's I I don't have any problems with it. Like Madame Defarge could be better, but I think I, I think that for me there was something about her like extreme coldness and and her presence is very big while not being terribly uh, complex. But she's kind of like this this rock that everyone in Paris is dashed against and i think that that i think that that's appropriate given what it is that she does
1: yeah i mean i think i think the biggest thing i would knock this movie about is making it that by the end of the film the poor are uncomplicatedly the villains and the aristocracy are uncomplicatedly the victims of the french revolution in a way that's really kind of over the top, uh, and I think really saved by Isabel Jewell and by the Seamstress character coming in and distracting from that being the big moral takeaway at the end of the movie. But I also think that isn't the big moral takeaway at the end of the movie, because the Seamstress Carton stuff so thoroughly owns that last 10 minutes of the film. That, like, you... Still, kind of end up going like, uh, I don't know about that. That's not great. Yeah. But it isn't as central as it might have otherwise been to my memory of this movie. And like again, my whole point is that's actually really complicated, and not like that that it, it should be the other way around completely, or it like anything. So much as just like that felt a little bit sloppy and a little bit like hastily drawn as sort of a caricature of what happened in a way that like was not as artful as the rest of this movie.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's difficult, I think, to one, it's difficult to talk about the French Revolution in any sort of clear terms that would translate to cinema at all because It was so complicated, and there were so many different parties, and some would have power sometimes, and some would have power at others, and pretty much everybody ended up at the guillotine eventually. But because our perspective is always the English people in this film, I feel like that makes sense that we don't get the complicated parts of it, because they're not there for it. They, like, go back for the reign of terror.
1: (laughs) Again, I'm still giving it an 8. I think the reason I'm not arguing for a higher score is that there's, like, specifically there's kind of a shot of, like, two of the aristocrats waiting for death going, like, don't let them see you. Like, they don't, like, they don't deserve to know that we're scared or something. And I'm like, I don't know about this. Where, like, I I, I get it. yeah, But, like, it also just ends up being complicated and not in a, like... <laughs> It ends up being complicated for me, but not that the movie is making it more complicated that in the first half, your sympathies are so thoroughly with the poor. And then it's just like, well, now they want to kill the rich and we can't have that. And it's like, I am not sure that's where the line is. I, okay. Yeah.
0: I mean, and again, our representatives of the poor are Defarge, who is, she's, she's not a good person. Uh, and someone who is, a woman who is literally called The Vengeance. Right. And, and, like, that is her character. Like, there's no, we know nothing about her past at all. She's just bloodthirsty.
1: My favorite thing about The Vengeance is The Vengeance gives the daughter a tiny little guillotine. <laughs> like, I was, like, a charm bracelet guillotine. That's like, how did she, did she make that? Did they, were they, like, giving, like, where did she get that? Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I mean, they did, actually. They had-
1: Tiny little guillotines? I did not know this.
0: There's twice I- in the movie, they show somebody vending guillotine necklaces, and they, they did. They had guillotine earrings that you could get that would have, like, the culotte hat at the top and then a guillotine and then dangling from the bottom- Like, one would have the head of the king and one would have the head of the queen. Like, those actually existed, and that's, like, period.
1: Okay, then I'm just an idiot, but that was so bonkers to me. that There's just this scene where they go to Madame Defarge's place to try and, like, beg her to have pity on Darnay, which she's never gonna do. And the vengeance is there and sees the daughter... And just gives her a tiny little guillotine necklace. And I'm like, that is the craziest thing I've ever seen in my life. And so, of course, it's the thing that actually historically makes sense and would have happened. Like... That, that actually checks out now that I think about it.
0: Yeah. Well, also, I mean, it's the French. Like, of course, they've got to aestheticize everything. Right. It, it's like, yeah, down down with the upper class and down with wearing breeches and everybody has to wear pants like the, like the common people. But also, would you like some earrings of the guillotine? <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Should you watch this movie?
0: I'm going to say yeah.
1: I'm going to say yes as well. Like, I I think this one's worth your time.
0: I really don't have any qualifications for it. Like, I think it's a damn good movie. It's two hours long and it didn't feel like two hours. And usually, yeah. I feel like when we're watching movies from the 30s, the movie is like 90 minutes long and it feels like I've lost years of my life.
1: Yeah. Like, this is definitely one where, like, I was seeing that the runtime was over two hours and was like... Oh, no. And it then felt much shorter than any movie we've watched in months.
0: Yeah, it was really good. Ronald Coleman is just so damn good. And really, like, everybody in the movie is great, but his performance.
1: Yeah. I mean, like, this is a, like, I want to get a fucking Oscar role and he nails it.
0: Yeah, yeah. He apparently wanted to do this role, like, his whole life like in an interview seven years before this, said something about like, yeah, that's the role that I want to play. And he was apparently like very serious on set because this was, I mean, this was his dream part and he, he killed it. So, you know, good job. Yeah. So for next week. All right. The story of Louis Pasteur starring Paul Mooney from I Was a Fugitive from a Chain Gang as the titular character. I have no feelings about this one way or another, honestly.
1: This poster, though, is nuts.
0: (laughs) It definitely makes the story of Louis Pasteur look like a genre horror film from the 30s.
1: Did you know Louis Pasteur was literally the devil? Because that's (laughs) what this poster is telling me.
0: Uh, I actually just read a book that he was slightly featured in. slightly like pretty heavily featured toward the end which is called the butchering art which is about how lister discovered germ theory like pasteur had the idea that diseases were caused by microbes but he didn't have anybody who was like practicing to prove that and then lister in england was doing that and they became really good friends but he probably won't be in this movie
1: no he is Lister. like they oh he is yeah oh cool
0: well, we'll see how this goes. Um yeah. I you know, I I have to say like I I think I have like some some pretty serious trauma from 1934 where I'm like, "Oh, we watched a great movie first. Surely like the rest of the year will also be equally good." Yeah. Where now I'm like I I'm afraid to watch the next movie. <laughs> uh. But but we will we will soldier on.
1: Yeah, and I will say like the the one after this is the great Zigfield with William Powell and Myrna Loy. Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's there's almost certainly gonna be one other good movie in this year.
1: Yeah. Like.
0: <laughs> oh well, well two because we've got a Frank Capra. In. Yeah.
1: Like there's there's a lot of stuff I think has potential in here. I'm dreading this Romeo and Juliet. I kind of have to be honest with you. Even though I would like Norma Shearer and Leslie Howard.
0: And John Barrymore. Yeah. But it's directed by George Cougar.
1: Jesus. Um,
0: <laughs> of, of David Copperfield infamy. <sighs> <laughs> but we're getting ahead of ourselves.
1: Exactly. I think really the way to think of it is we got a good movie. And like, that's something. That's true. Maybe that just means nothing for what happens next week. Let's just celebrate instead of dreading what that means for just cursing us for the rest of the year. That,
0: that's fair. Yeah. We'll, we'll celebrate A Tale of Two Cities and we'll cross Louis Pasteur when we get there. Yup. Uh, until then, this
1: was a really good movie. Yeah, this was a really good movie. Bye. Yeah, bye, everybody. It's a far, far better thing I do than I have ever done. It's a far, far better rest I go to than I have ever known.